Well, hello, friends. It's good to see you, or good to be seen by you, I suppose would be the more accurate and correct way of saying that. Bill Allen here from downtown Tyler, Texas, and West Irwin Church of Christ. Uh, nice to have you joining us. I'm sure we'll have a few that will uh, pile in, some of the regulars, perhaps a few others. I get to talk to a lot of people who say that they, uh, they view this, they don't comment, they don't uh, put their name down, but they're there, and I see the numbers on that. So it's a, it's a great honor to me to have you uh, participating in this Bible study as we have gone through the book of Matthew uh, earlier this year. When the pandemic started up, we started going to Facebook Live and doing some extra Bible studies on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Went through the book of Matthew, two chapters at a time, and that was quite a challenge. And now we're in the book of Acts, and we're going through the book of Acts, one chapter each Tuesday and Thursday, pretty much, a few exceptions, but mostly just one chapter at a time. And that's challenging enough. I can't imagine doing two of these every week, every day, uh, twice a week. But at any rate, we are going to be in chapter 19 today. We're in Paul's third mission journey, and he is... Uh, uh, he is having quite uh, some some experiences. We see this uh, uh, this uh, uh, going very difficult for him at times, and we're certainly going to see uh, a great challenge that he experiences here in Acts 19 in the city of Ephesus. Uh, hi, Debbie. Nice to see you. You waved to me, so I'm waving back. There you go. Uh, others that are going to be joining in and piling in, that's a great blessing. I appreciate that. Uh, very much. Um, if you have your handy-dandy Bible map, or you have access to Google, or something like that, uh, a commentary, or a study Bible, uh, that would be great. We're uh, going to be, again, in Paul's third mission journey. Uh, we saw uh, the second journey end in chapter 18. It's uh, most of that chapter devoted to Paul's experiences in Corinth, uh, in modern-day Greece. And then um, uh, he uh, comes across and ends up back at Antioch of Syria uh, and on the eastern coast, near the eastern coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And then he uh, uh, shares with the church there, his home church, his sponsoring congregation, if you will, for his mission journeys, first with Barnabas and now the second and third uh, with Silas, who joined him from Jerusalem after the Jerusalem Conference. And Acts 15 came to Antioch with him and stayed and became his new missionary partner when he and Barnabas split up and Barnabas took John Mark and went one way, Paul took Silas and then later Timothy and went another way. Along the way, he's going to meet some others that are going to take part in his ministry, such as uh, Priscilla and Aquila that we met uh, last time as he was in Corinth and they had uh, they were refugees, basically. They had been kicked out of, out of Rome uh, by uh, the emperor. All the Jews had to leave, and so they ended up in Corinth when Paul was there. Uh, fellow tent makers, they worked together for a while. Perhaps Paul converted them there. Uh, and at any rate, they became very close, very good friends, very much uh, mutual respect for one another. Uh, Paul speaks highly of them as his fellow sufferers and uh, fellow missionaries. Uh, and then Paul goes on, and he goes uh, from Corinth, and as we're going to see, uh, today ultimately ends up in Ephesus. And so as you get out your, uh, your map and you look at it, um, Corinth and Athens are in the southern portion of modern-day Greece in Europe. Uh, um, he had been to the northern part of that uh, area uh, in the churches at uh, Thessalonica and Berea and Philippi. 
then to the south, primarily in Corinth and uh, Athens. And now he is coming across uh, the sea and is going to be making his way back home and ends up, first of all, in, um, in Ephesus as he retraces some of his steps. And uh, also as he gets uh, finally to Ephesus, he had been meaning to go there a while, but finally is going to be able, able to do that. It is in modern-day Turkey on the western uh, part of that uh, nation, uh, and he is in the, the Roman province of Asia. That's not to be confused with the continent of Asia, uh, but rather uh, the Roman province of Asia, which is on the far western part of what we would call modern-day uh, Turkey. So that sets the stage a little bit for us. Uh, folks are joining in. Um, nice to see my sister Tia uh, here. appreciate you and uh, your service and love for the Lord and for His church. And, uh, and I think it's going to be time for us to go ahead and get into Acts chapter 19. And so let's talk for a little bit, first of all, about the city of Ephesus and a little bit about the church uh, that is there in that great uh, city. It is located, as I said, in the western province, the Roman province of Asia, uh, in modern-day Turkey on the western part. Uh, it was a key city in the Roman Empire and the most important city in that province of uh, Asia. And as, uh, uh, as you know, there was, perhaps you know, uh, there was a, a great temple there. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was the temple of Artemis or Diana, the Greek goddess Artemis, uh, the Roman version, uh, Diana. Uh, and um, she was, uh, a, according to legend, uh, she was the daughter of Zeus and was the twin sister of Apollo, older by some say a day or two, depending on the legend. Um, and so this was a, a, a very big, big deal. They said that this, this uh, 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 temple area and the arena in Ephesus could seat uh, 25,000 people. It was quite a magnificent structure. Uh, considering first century, it would be magnificent even by today's standards. Uh, but uh, by first century standards, it was just absolutely uh, incredible, no doubt, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, and um, and, a, and a great uh, uh, place for uh, discussions and meetings and uh, assemblies, as we're going to see, and that is a key a key word. So now that's the city. Uh, let's talk about the church at Ephesus. Paul stopped there at the end of his second mission journey in Acts 18, but he doesn't stay there long, and uh, Luke doesn't say much happened there. Uh, a lot happened in Athens, a lot happened in Corinth, but not much happened in Ephesus until this, until this chapter in chapter 19 in the third mission journey. Uh, for Luke, there's not much to go to talk about in that second journey, uh, at the end of Acts 18. And then uh, as he is going along, he um, uh, passes Ephesus and then goes back uh, to Antioch and meets with the church there. And then almost immediately, it seems, it probably not, but it goes very quickly in Acts 18 into his third mission journey. And he uh, begins to, um, to move right back along, going through uh, what we would call modern-day Turkey, as he did with Barnabas on the first journey and then with Silas and Timothy on the second one, uh, building up the churches, continuing to preach the message of Christ uh, to Jew and Gentile 
and, and then he ends up on the western part of that area in the province of Asia and finds himself uh, in the city of Ephesus on this third mission journey. Paul would later meet with the Ephesian elders on the island of Miletus, uh, near uh, just off the coast of the province of Asia, and that's recorded in Acts 20, and that's a very, uh, a very emotional gathering there. Paul meets with the elders uh, from the church at Ephesus that we're going to be talking about uh, today and offered them very strong warnings, talking to them in Acts 20, as we will see next week. Uh, in the strongest of terms, warning them that there's going to be some issues and problems with the church there, and some of it is going to be caused even by those very elders who are going to be trying to get disciples uh, for themselves rather than serve others uh, and point them to Jesus Christ. That passage in Ephesians 20 is a, it's a great passage. One of the great verses on, on elders is Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Um, uh, to uh, calling on elders to shepherd the church of God, of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Just an incredible statement in Acts 20, verse 28. Uh, continuing on, talking about the church at Ephesus, before we get to Acts 19, Timothy, Paul's mission partner, his son in the gospel, that he, has, uh, that he baptizes, whose mother was a Jewish woman and a believer, father was a Greek, and so he had never been never been circumcised. Paul has him circumcised in Acts 16 as he begins uh, this journey of his second uh, mission journey and wants to take Timothy with him. And because they'll be interacting with a lot of Jews, they'll be likely going in and out of some uh, important areas for the Jews, uh, Timothy is, um, is circumcised. Well, Paul leaves Timothy in Ephesus, and, uh, and while he is ministering there, um, Paul writes the, the messages of First and Second Timothy. Likely some of the last writings that the Apostle Paul will have, probably Second Timothy, the very last, uh, and the urgency that Paul has while he is in prison in Rome, writing those words um, uh, to his protege uh, and missionary partner, uh, Timothy. Uh, the recipient of the Ephesians letter, uh, the church at Ephesus, as best we can tell. There's some discussion about that, uh, but I believe that it went to uh, Ephesus and was uh, given to the Ephesians. It was, there was a letter to Colossae, which was not too far from there, and basically, as Paul writes, both of them about the same time uh, from uh, prison in Rome, possibly while he was incarcerated at the end of the book of Acts. Um, very similar letters uh, and, um, and very important letters for the church. This book of Ephesians, as we call it, is a very significant uh, writing, uh, lots of very important teaching for uh, the church of the first century and for us today in the church uh, as well. Uh, it's uh, one of those prison epistles, Ephesians and Colossians, Philemon, written to a man who was a member of the church at Colossae, where probably hosted the church, as best we can tell from what Paul uh, says. Uh, Ephesians and Colossians and Philemon, and then, of course, uh, Philippians, written at that time as well. In the book of Ephesians, uh, a great message about salvation and theology, especially in chapters 1 through 3. He talks a lot, that great passage in Ephesians 2 that says we are saved by grace, uh, through faith, and that not of yourselves, uh, it is the work of God, so that no one 
can boast. And then calling us in Ephesians 2, verse 10, reminding us that we're God's creation, workmanship, uh, created to do good deeds and good works. A very important uh, message there, a very important uh, uh, speaking to Jew and Gentile Christians, calling on them to be unified and to be one in the faith, knowing that they all are saved by the same grace of God and blood of Christ. And then he talks more specifically in chapters 4 through 6 to the Ephesians uh, about the Christian life, about what that looks like, about what it looks like in the church. And boy, chapter 4 is such an important teaching for us today uh, because it, it calls on us in those first six verses to uh, be committed to maintaining the unity of the church and of the spirit and the bond of peace and to be considerate and respectful of one another especially with those uh, that we disagree with. Uh, that is the message. And then he goes on after that and talks about the great gifts of the church and, and how different we are. Uh, we think of all those ones in the first six verses, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father, all of those things. Uh, and, uh, and we think, wow, that church was really unified. Well, that church was very diverse. It was a very important city and lots of Jews, lots of Gentile Christians, obvious from the writings in the book of Ephesians. They really had some issues there still. And he talks a lot about that, that, that God made the two one and that he broke down that dividing wall, that barrier that divided Jewish Christian and Gentile Christian, Jew and Gentile, by making them both Christian, by making them both disciples of Jesus Christ. Uh, but in chapter 4, it goes on, and it, it's remarkable because all of that work and talk about the church being one, and then he says, but you're very different. You have different gifts. You have, and it's so much, uh, so similar to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and also some places in 1 Corinthians 8 and 10, where he talks about how we have different beliefs about some things. Um, we have different gifts. We have different interests. We have different passions, and that's okay. In fact, it's by design. Because if the church were just exactly like me and every member was just exactly like me, then it wouldn't get a whole lot done. It would be very narrow in its focus and its ability to minister to others. And so that's why God designed the church to be different. One body but many members, as Paul tells the Corinthians, who were a really divided lot, as we said last time, based on uh, those passages about Paul and Apollos and Peter and Christ of being used in divisive ways. Uh, they, um, they were told, uh, it doesn't matter who your preacher is, it doesn't matter who taught you, who baptized you, what matters is who saved you. And that is Jesus and Jesus only. Um, so he continues on in Ephesians, writes a lot about the family in chapters 5 and, and the first part of chapter 6. Gives us that great passage uh, in chapter 6, verses 10 through 20, um, about spiritual warfare and the armor of God and those great things such as the helmet of salvation and the shield of faith and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So a great letter to the Ephesian Christians that we're going to read about here in Acts chapter uh, 19. But we're not through yet uh, uh, with Ephesus and the church at Ephesus in the Bible because in the very last book of the Bible, as you know, in Revelation, Jesus has John... Uh, send letters to the churches uh, and to the angels of the churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And one of those is to Ephesus. And you probably may remember, at least when I mention this, you'll be rem reminded of Jesus' message to the church at Ephesus. He had some good things to say about them, 
but he also had some real strong concerns. And one of the primary things he says in that passage to the church at Ephesus is, you have left your first love. Uh, you no longer have the love for me that you had at first. What a horrible, horrible commentary on what had happened to that church. Clearly what Paul warned the elders about in Acts chapter 20 actually came to pass. And as he instructs Timothy in First and Second Timothy, while he is in Ephesus, he talks a lot about leadership uh, and, and calls on Timothy to appoint elders and deacons who are men who will be faithful, who are spiritual men, who will be servants, who will not try to uh, do things to receive glory for themselves, but will do things that will help the church and that will bring honor and glory uh, to Christ. Uh, that great passage in Revelation 2, the first seven verses, uh, the letter of Jesus to the church at Ephesus who had forsaken their first love. Okay, what a great introduction, right? This is going to be a fun study in Acts chapter 19. It's going to be a crazy wild riot, and it's going to be a, a whole lot crazier even than what we're seeing in the United States today. Uh, it's not Portland or Seattle or Minneapolis or D.C. or New York City or any of the major uh, metropolitan cities in the United States, all of which have had uh, some struggles of late. Um, it is actually in the first century in the Roman Empire in the city of Ephesus. Uh, one little note as well about all of this. This is about the time, somewhere uh, in the mid-50s CE, mid-AD 50s, where um, uh, Nero becomes the emperor. I'm not sure that if it's while Paul was at Ephesus, but it's about this time. Uh, that the Roman Emperor Nero comes to power, and he is going to be the emperor, uh, as you know, that will be presiding over the great fire in Rome and blames it on the Christians uh, because they're a good patsy for him and is the one who calls on um, the authorities to uh, put to death uh, the apostles Peter and Paul. Um, but that's a ways away. We're, uh, we're still probably 15 years away uh, from that. Uh, so Paul, uh, in uh, this third missionary journey, uh, we begin in Acts chapter 19, verse 1. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. Uh, so uh, Apollos is at Corinth. Remember, we met him. Uh, we met him. He had been to Ephesus, and then he goes to Corinth, and the people at Ephesus, uh, Aquila and Priscilla, take him under their wing, and they uh, teach him the way of God more perfectly. Uh, and, um, and while he is in uh, Corinth, he becomes a very powerful, powerful preacher uh, in the church. Um, and so while he, Apollos, is in Corinth, Paul uh, is, uh, takes the interior and arrives at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Now, i got to have a little bit of a joking commentary here. That sounds like a lot of my brethren in the churches of Christ. And as a Church of Christ preacher, guilty is partly my fault. We just don't say much about the Holy Spirit, and what a sad, sad thing that is. And I think it's because... Um, we have seen a lot of abuses of the power of the Spirit and the presence of the Spirit, and because of that, especially in years past, but even today, um, because of that, we have decided, you know, the best thing to do is to kind of not talk about the Holy Spirit at all and just talk about God the Father or Jesus Christ of Nazareth. 
Uh, let's, let's talk about that safe. But the Holy Spirit is very much a part of that divine nature, that eternal Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, that Trinity. Clear scriptures that talk about that, uh, such as Matthew 28 in the Great Commission, baptizing them, Jesus says, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Jesus promising in those great chapters in the book of John, uh, chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16, saying that I'm going to send you another comforter. He will continue my presence with you. I'm going to leave you, Jesus says, but I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, uh, which will be an advocate, a comforter, just like I have been. And so when Jesus ascends to the Father, then we have a, 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 a while, and then in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit uh, is given. And then that Spirit comes in, in an indwelling form, as we read about in the book of Ephesians chapter 1 and also in 2 Corinthians, uh, in a, dwells within us as Christians. The promise in Acts 2 that um, uh, we will receive the Holy Spirit when we repent and are baptized into Jesus Christ. Well, unfortunately, we've been too scared to talk much about the Spirit, and, and I think sometimes for good reason, but we need to not do that. Um, you know, when you pray to God, and you ask him to take care of your children like our girls and their families are away from us uh, in Arlington, Texas, and in the D.C. area in Rockville, Maryland. And when we pray for God to take care of them, how is he going to do that? Well, he's going to do that through his spirit. That's going to be the presence uh, that does the work of the Father uh, and uh, continues the presence and work and ministry of Jesus Christ. That's the Holy Spirit. I like Tim Woodruff's title for his book several years ago on the Holy Spirit as he talked about a spirit for the rest of us. And I like that. I like that. There is that sense where there is so much abuse spoken about the Holy Spirit or nothing spoken about the Holy Spirit. Uh, and, and for that title, a spirit for the rest of us, I'm not going to be on either extreme when you talk about the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to believe that he's under every rock and, and is active in every moment and every thought. and all. I realize the Spirit is always with us, but that doesn't mean that uh, everything that happens to us is because the Holy Spirit did it. Uh, I think we need to be very careful about that. But also, that doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit doesn't exist and that he's not important to us, because he is. And I think most of us in Churches of Christ have erred more on that side than... Uh, the other. We'll talk about the other side as we get a little bit later in this chapter in Acts 19. Uh, but I think we, I think we have done ourselves and our people a great disservice by not relying more on the Holy Spirit of God, continuing the presence of Christ. Unfortunately, we're like these folks here in Acts 19. Uh, they, Paul asked them uh, if they had received the Holy Spirit when they were baptized, and they said, "No, we haven't even heard that there was a Holy Spirit." Um, and so then he asked them about their baptism, because that's how that works. We can try to erase all the teaching of baptism in the New Testament, but it's there. It's everywhere. And here it's almost a, a sidelight. But for Paul, these men had been baptized, but let's keep reading. In verse 3, Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. 
When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Oh, there's so much I want to say about these verses. Um, first of all, when Paul realizes they don't know anything about the Holy Spirit, he says, well, well, tell me about your baptism then, because that's when you receive the Holy Spirit, to dwell inside you, to be a, a, a convicting presence for you and a guide, and to offer you peace and assurance and comfort, um, help you with your prayers, according to Romans 8, all those things. They say, well, we will only know John's baptism, so probably something pretty similar to what we read about the great preacher Apollos before Priscilla and Aquila helped him and explained to him uh, more completely the word and will of God and told him about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection and ascension and the beginning of the church and the call of, of faith in Christ. Um, and they didn't know about that. They, they had heard John's baptism. John, that, that voice calling in the wilderness, in the desert, get ready for the Lord, prepare ye the way of the Lord, is that great song from Godspell has in John the Baptist character. Um, and, and, and that's all they knew. And so Paul says, look, John was talking about somebody that was going to come, but that person has come, and his name is Jesus. And he gave his life on the cross for your sins and for mine. And now repentance and remission of sins is preached in the name of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And so upon hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, verse 5. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of people through the years that have asked me about about that. They have asked me, look, I was baptized and I'm not sure if I should be baptized again or not. So let's talk about that for a moment. <clears throat> I don't think most people should be rebaptized. I, I, my, I typically try to talk people out of it if I can, unless they tell me something blatant and glaring that was wrong like these men. They, didn't even, they weren't even baptized in the name of Jesus. That's a no-brainer. Let's baptize you again because the first time that was not in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's what we're supposed to do. Uh, others have said, I was a little young, I'm not sure I understood, or I think I just responded because everybody else in the youth group was responding, or I, I had a girlfriend and she wanted me to, or whatever it might be. Um, I, I, every individual case is just that, it's individual case. And so let's talk about it. If you're having doubts and questions about that, then by all means, talk to somebody about that. But if you understood that Jesus is Lord, and if you understood that you were doing this to fulfill his commandment and to be obedient and to uh, see your sins washed away, and, uh, and maybe there's a lot that you've learned about baptism since then, that's a good thing. You should know more now about the importance and the blessing of Christian baptism than you did when you were baptized. That's called growing in your faith. Uh, that's understandable. But if it's something like what these men had, where it wasn't what the scriptures talked about, uh, now that Jesus has been raised from the dead and has been named both Lord and Christ, as Peter says in Acts 2, well, then that's something that you should strongly uh, consider. If it's, if it's something that is just causing you so much anxiety because you have such serious doubts about it, then I am certainly not going to talk you out of being baptized. Because here's the thing, either you just got wet that first time around and this, this time it, is, it matters, or the first time around it was actually more effective than you might have thought, and this time it's just a, a matter of getting wet. 
This is such an important thing. The response of faith is such an important thing that yes, yes, I think you should uh, by all means consider that. But because baptism is so important and as an act of faith, as a part of the response of faith, I don't think we need to take that lightly. And I don't want us to do a disservice to the importance of baptism. You know, earlier in Acts chapter 8, when Simon the sorcerer was converted and baptized, and then he tried to buy the gift of God with money, the gift that Luke mentions again right here that we'll talk about in a second, passing on those miraculous, extraordinary gifts, uh, Peter didn't tell him to be rebaptized. Peter told him to repent, and Simon asked that he pray for him. That's the pattern. That's what we're supposed to do when we are caught up in our sins after becoming a Christian. He calls on us to repent, to change our way, and to seek the prayers uh, and encouragement of other Christians. I think that's what we do more times, or else we'd be baptized every single day, and that's obviously not, not right. And so consider those things. If you have questions, feel free to send me a Facebook message or an email or something, or talk to your preacher, talk to your minister, talk to a trusted friend uh, that is uh, well-versed in Scripture and, and, uh, and pray about that. Because there's nothing more important than responding in faith to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, yes, let's answer all those questions that we can, possibly can. Um, and then this last verse in this section, in verse 6 and 7, when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. Well, again, we see how that miraculous, extraordinary gift of the Holy Spirit was passed on. Just as in Acts chapter 8, when Philip is there, and he's baptizing all of these Samaritans, including Simon, and, and they're being saved, and they receive that indwelling power uh, presence of the Spirit, but then they send to Jerusalem and bring down two apostles, uh, Peter and John, and they lay their hands on the newly baptized uh, uh, Samaritan disciples, and they receive these extraordinary powers. And that's what Simon lusts to have. And that's what he tries to buy. And Peter condemns him, and he repents, it looks like, and he asks for their prayers. Well, here, it's different. It's Paul who is doing the baptizing, but then it also makes special mention that he specifically laid his hands on them, uh, not to give them salvation, but to impart these extraordinary gifts of the Holy Spirit that were transmitted by the laying on of hands of one of the apostles. So when did those gifts cease? Well, I think they ceased when the last of those uh, disciples who were alive during the time of the apostles and had, had interaction with them in this way uh, when they passed, then that was the end of, of those miraculous gifts. So sometime in the second century, I would think, uh, sometime before A.D. 200, maybe a little after, who knows how long these people lived. Um, I, would, I would think that, and you say, but Bill, people talk about uh, miracles today, and yeah, I'm not going to say God doesn't do miracles. God is God. I'm not. He's sovereign. He can do whatever he wants, uh, but we don't read about the extraordinary miracles that we read about in the time of Christ. We don't read about in the newspaper or see online stories uh, about extraordinary miracles like we're going to read about in just a moment that Paul did in Ephesus. I mean, incredible things. We don't see anything like that in history uh, since this time. And I think that that says something. 
Okay, well, let's go on. My my friend and my middle daughter, one of my middle daughters, my Ashley K. Faso, has joined us, and I'm so glad, glad to see you. This preacher man loves you so much and misses you and loves your parents so much. They're some of our very best friends. Um, and so let's keep going. In the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 19, let's start reading in verse 8, and we're going to read about Paul's ministry here. Now that he's met these men coming into town, now he's going to uh, begin to minister and preach to Jew and Gentile. Acts 19, verse 8. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, working with the Jews in the synagogue, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years, a long time for Paul to spend here in Ephesus, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of God. So as his custom is, he goes to the synagogue first. He goes to his own people. And what does he do? Well, he goes back to the Old Testament, takes out those scrolls such as Isaiah 53, and talks to them about how Jesus is the fulfillment of all of their hopes and all of these promises. And some of them accept that message and are baptized and become Christians. Some of them are not. And some of them become obstinate. And as he's experienced in almost every city he's been to, likely every city he's been to, they stir up trouble for him. And so he goes to the non-Jews, to the Gentiles. He goes to one of their public meeting places, one of their assembly halls. Not the big theater, but one of their assembly halls. And, and where they, just like he did in Athens at the Areopagus, where people come and they talk about uh, different things, different topics, and have discussions. And Paul went and he joined right in there. And he did that for two years. And because of his ministry there in Ephesus, there were a lot of Jews and non-Jews who were uh, converted. Now we read again about those extraordinary miracles, incredible miracles we don't read about today anywhere what we're about to read. Um, verse 11, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left him. What an incredible power that God had given him, that he could just, his handkerchief he could send with somebody, and it would cause someone to be healed. Amazing. Verse 13, some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. You know, we saw uh, Simon the sorcerer was a guy who did some incredible things. Others have done some things. Um, these guys were some of those kinds of people, but now they're going to try to call on Paul's name and Jesus' name as well. Uh, they would say in the middle of verse 13, they would say, in the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, <laughs> I command you to come out. Well, that's, you know, I'm, I'm thinking you just stop it in the name of Jesus. And either you're close to him or you're not. And either you have that gift and that power or you don't. But that's not what they did. They were trying to piggyback on Paul's faith and say, look, Paul can do all these extraordinary things and he's getting a lot of praise for it. Um, let's... I'm, I'm trying to drive you out by the name of the one that Paul preaches. <laughs> yeah, that's not going to work. Verse 14, seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. So these were high-ranking people within the Jewish faith. 
One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I know about, but who are you? Busted, <laughs> basically. Luke doesn't put that in there, but that was Bill's commentary. Verse 16, then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. They tried to piggyback on Paul's faith and Paul's gifts, and that wouldn't work. In the name of the Jesus who Paul preaches, I command you to come out. And, and that, you know, that, that was okay for them saying for a while, but finally one of those demons called them out on it. And it ended up not going so well for them, but people saw that and they realized that and they held the name of Jesus Christ in reverence. They realized this is not any ordinary name. This is not any ordinary person. This is actually who Paul says he is, that he is King of Kings and Lord of Lords, so much so that even demons have to submit to him when they may not submit to someone else. Um, verse 18 of Acts 19. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. They were confessing their sins and also confessing their faith. Verse 19, a number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas that is a lot of money that's i don't know how many years that is that could be a hundred years of daily wages uh it is it is because a drachma was about a day's wage so i'll let you do the math on that in this way the word of the lord spread widely and grew in power so they had a book burning party and it was major and i'm not saying that we need to do that i'm not saying that we should do that there's a lot of discussion right now about the related topic of destroying statues and, and burning uh, things that might be considered uh, oppressive or um, that might cause uh, some others to uh, look down on them. Um, I, that's, a, that's a huge social question. Uh, this question right here involves false gods. It involves idolatry. And these Ephesians, they were serious about their faith, and they seriously uh, were willing to give up uh, everything that was associated with idolatry to them. In the Old Testament, we see prophets of God calling on people to do the same thing. We see great kings like Hezekiah and Josiah doing great reforms and destroying the altars of false gods. That's kind of the spirit and the purpose here um, as well. Verse 21, after all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem. So he's now going to leave uh, thinking about leaving Ephesus, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I have been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. This is his plans for the rest of his mission journey. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. So Paul is staying in Ephesus a little longer, but he's sending Timothy and another of his uh, partners there, Erastus, on to Macedonia where Philippi, Berea, and Thessalonica were. They're going ahead of him. That's where he plans to go. So he's going to send them, but he's going to stay in Ephesus a little while longer. And now we read about one of the biggest stories uh, that we read about in Paul's mission journeys. It is, um, it is an incredible illegal assembly 
Interestingly enough, in these verses that follow, starting in verse 23, it talks about an illegal assembly, a riot, a protest that goes very, very bad and almost uh, takes the life of the Apostle Paul. And it's all in the name of money. Money is the bottom line here. Uh, they stir people up and get them involved in their goddess who was Artemis, which is the uh, Greek goddess who was, uh, according to legend, uh, a daughter of Zeus and the twin sister, older sister of the god Apollo. Um, supposedly, she came down to Ephesus, and now here is this big theater and this big temple that honors her. Well, that's what some people are going to say is going on here, but what's really going on here is there's a group of men who are make a living out of making little idols uh, for worship of the Greek goddess um, Artemis, uh, the Roman Diana. And now they're going to see what Paul is doing and sees all these people getting rid of their books and their idols and all of these other things associated with their idol worship. And they don't like that because it's hitting them in the pocketbook. And these are the ones that are going to stir up this big, huge riot in this major important town in this huge theater that seats 25,000 people. And Paul is nearly pulled apart, literally, over it all. Uh, nearly killed because of, because of this. And it's very similar to what happened to Jesus when those Jewish leaders, because of their concern for their money, for their position, for their power, uh, they stirred up the people and had them crucified. Uh, that's what happens here as well. Let's read about it, shall we? Acts 19, verse 23, still in the city of Ephesus, western part of modern-day Turkey, Roman province, first-century province of Asia. Verse 23, about that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. And isn't it amazing how Luke records that? the way. He calls on this movement. It's still considered by some to be a part of, a, to be a Jewish faction, uh, a Jewish sect, and yet it is what Luke calls the way. Jesus, remember in John 14, verse 6, it said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Uh, what a great message, very divisive message. Jesus makes a clear line, and he says, look, other people can say that there's lot, it's like a road map. You want to all get to heaven to, to the creator God, but there's lots of different ways to get there. Well, that's not found in Scripture. What's found in Scripture is that there is one way, Jesus Christ. He is the way. Paul would write to Timothy, and he would say, let's pray for our, our uh, civil leaders in 1 Timothy 2 so that we can have peace so that the gospel can be spread because there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, and it is the man, Christ Jesus. Scripture clearly says that. That's what these people at Ephesus had come to believe and accept, and now it's going to hit some people in the pocketbook, starting with this man by the name of Demetrius. Verse 24, a silversmith named Demetrius who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together along with the workers in related trades and said, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. It's a money deal. 
from the start. Verse 26, and you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. That is exactly what he says. That was his message in Athens in Acts 17. That is his message at every stop when he's talking to Gentiles, to non-Jews. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world will be robbed of her divine majesty. Right, that's what you're concerned about. I don't think so. He's concerned about his income, but he's got to tie it into this emotional hook so that they can stir up the people, stir up each other first and then stir up the people. Oh, this is about our great goddess Artemis, who is something that is built by human hands and can't speak for herself. That's what Paul would say. That's what Isaiah would say. That's what Jeremiah would say. But that's what, not what they're saying. We must speak for her. We must defend her. Um, verse 28, when they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in uproar. That's how this goes. You, you get people emotionally attached to something, and it's that mob rule, that mob mentality thing where good, good sense and clear thinking gets lost in the shuffle. And now it's just this emotional uproar. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. It's, it's, they're, they're hooked in it on an emotional level. And they, in a sense, they lose a lot of their self-control. Verse 29, soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. Remember, we had talked about them earlier. And all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. Don't come here. These people are crazy. They've lost all control. Much like when Stephen was killed as the first martyr um, in Acts chapter 7, put to death by those Jews who stoned him because they were so angry, so upset at what he was saying. Um, begging Paul not to go. Verse 32, the assembly was in confusion. Now that term assembly is a special term. If you know your Greek, it's the term ekklesia. It's the term that we translate in other passages, church. We read that term in this verse, in verse 39 and in verse 41, because that's what the word literally means, an assembly of people. And that's the word that the Holy Spirit chooses to use to name the church. Why? Because it is an assembly of people. It is those who are called out. That's what that name, that word literally means, the called out ones. It is the ones who are an assembly, uh, the assembly of Christ, the church of Christ. Verse 32, the assembly, in this case, a secular assembly, an illegal assembly, a riotous assembly. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting something, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. That's a mob mentality. That's where you just stir people up, get them going emotionally, and, and the cause no longer matters. Uh, I fear, I fear 
that we're seeing some of that in some of our, our major cities today, and that's such a tragedy because the, the cause of justice and equality is such an important cause in a democratic republic, and yet that cause is being lost by this type of group, by this type of people who are simply trying to get their way, and, and it has, has little to do with what the crowd is so worked up over. Um, that is exactly what happens here in Acts chapter 19. Verse 33, the Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front. He is this guy who's kind of their spokesman. And they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. You see, to the Greeks, to the Romans, the Jews are no better than the Christians because they also believe in one God. They're monotheistic but they live at peace with the Romans. And, and now Paul is there and he's saying that we need to be serious about worshiping the one true and living God, the God in whom we live and move and have our very being, as he shared with uh, those in Athens, quoting what some of their own poets. Um, here, when they realize this Alexander, who may be another guy, that, the same guy that Paul mentions in some of his letters uh, to Timothy, to, that this guy did me a lot of disservice, well, he is the one that's going to be speaking for the Jews here, trying to discredit Paul. But when they hear that he's a Jew, they say, no, 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 we don't want any part of that. Um, verse 35, the city clerk quieted the crowd. Now this guy, I like this guy. He's not named here, but he's the city clerk. He's an official. He's the guy who comes in and takes control of a riotous, emotional out-of-control mob. This guy is amazing. We need this guy in 21st century, 2020 America. Uh, let's read about this guy. The city clerk quieted the crowd, so he's already impressive, and said, fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven? Yeah, that's the story. Verse 36, therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, talking about Paul, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. Paul doesn't care about those things. He is preaching the one true and living God. And then as a consequence, these other things are going to happen. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can take the matter to court. They can file a claim. They can let a judge hear their case. They can press charges. Verse 39, if there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. And there's that word again, assembly. In other places, in other contexts, it's translated church. It is the word that just means assembly. Verse 40, as it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. He calls it like he sees it. He says, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's get in control here. Let's not do anything that we're going to regret. We've already done some things we're going to regret. This is an illegal assembly. This is, we don't rule in the Roman Empire by mob justice. That's not what we do. 
we have laws. We have a justice system. Demetrius, if you and your fellow silversmiths and other craftsmen who think that you're being wronged by this guy want to establish that, then go to court. Go to court. If you're trying to defend the goddess Artemis of the Ephesians, look, everybody knows who she is. Everybody knows our story. Let her defend herself, basically. You don't have to defend her. As it is, verse 40, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. We, we don't have a leg to stand on here, he says, this city clerk, this city official. If somebody comes up and says, hey, what are you guys thinking? This is not legal. This is not right. This is not just. He really would have felt this way if he knew and realized that Paul was a Roman citizen himself by birth. And he didn't even know that much. But he knew that what was going on here was out of hand. And on his watch, it wasn't going to happen. <laughs> and so here he is in this massive theater with a lot of the city of Ephesus there out of complete control. And somehow or another, he gets everybody's attention and he quiets the crowd, first of all. And then he talks to them about, okay, this goddess, everybody knows her story. Let her fight her own battles. You guys, Demetrius and you other craftsmen, I realize that you may have a case against this guy if he's crossed the line and is affecting your paycheck. Go to court and get that settled in a legal way. But as of this, what I see going on right here, this isn't legal. This is an illegal assembly. And we could be called out on it. So you better stop it. You better pack it up and go home. And amazingly enough, that's exactly what happens. There's no burning down of churches or buildings or property. There's no taking Paul and beating him to death. There's none of that. It's amazing. Verse 41 of Acts 19, after he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. <laughs> Again, the word assembly. This city clerk gets up, and with all the authority of Rome behind him, I guess, he says, no, 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 we're not going to do this. We're not going to do this. You guys go home. You want to press charges? There are legal ways to do that, press charges. You want to defend your goddess? Great, do it. But don't do it like this. Don't do it like this. And he calls everybody out. He dismisses the assembly, and as best we can tell, Everybody goes home. Chapter 20 begins with the uproar ended. Paul continues uh, on his way. It's just an amazing story. In this huge, important city, this massive first century theater, this huge crowd, no doubt, out of control. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And then this law and order guy stands up. And he says, no, no, we're not going to have this. We're not going to do this. In the name of Rome, go home. Do this legally. Um, we need this guy uh, today. <laughs> in Acts chapter 20, Luke is going to mention that Paul stays in Ephesus for, uh, for about three years. We know that he stayed two years plus some where he had worked with um, the Jewish synagogue. And then two years uh, out of the synagogue, primarily preaching to the non-Jews, the Gentiles. Um, 
and has a very effective ministry there and, and establishes a very important uh, church. Well, incredible offense took place at Ephesus. This is an exciting chapter. This is an exciting book, this Bible. Have you read it? I hope you have. And it's fun going through these things, but it's also very challenging because as we read passages like this, we realize that some of the same kinds of things go on today, even in 21st century America. And what is needed? It's the message of Jesus Christ. It's the message that the Apostle Paul was preaching along with his missionary partners. It's the message that Philip the Evangelist preached. It's the message that that great church at Antioch of Syria was preaching. It's the message of Jesus Christ. It's the message of salvation. And yeah, there are going to be consequences, and some people are not only going to reject it, they're going to oppose you, and they're going to stand against you, and they may try to harm you. We need to have the faith that the first century Christians did when they said we must obey God rather than man. Yes, there may be some consequences, but we cannot turn our backs on this one who died for us. What a blessing it is. Incredible events took place here, but it's hard to think of Ephesus. It's just hard to think of Ephesus such as stories like these and not think about what Jesus wrote to them in those first couple of chapters of the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 2 and 3, when he tells them, you have left your first love. After all the preaching, all the teaching, all the examples, all the experiences, as Jesus writes the letter to the church at Ephesus, he tells them this, you have left your first love. May that never, ever, ever be said of us. God bless you through this weekend. May God continue to bless our great nation and this wonderful world uh, that he has created. Um, on uh, next Tuesday and Thursday, we'll be getting back into the book of Acts and we'll find that great message that Paul has in chapter 20 uh, to the Ephesian elders as he calls on them to join him on that island of Miletus. I pray God's richest blessings on you.